0: Man more important than the message. And there was a tendency to raise one man up over another man, causing division in the church that broke Christian unity. Let's begin with verses 1 through 5, beginning in chapter 4. Paul says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards, notice required, that one be found faithful. But with me, Paul said, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself because I know of nothing against myself. Yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. Until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So how are Christ's servants to be thought of? Well, Paul says, first of all, they're to be thought of as servants of Christ. Verse one tells us they're not lords over God's people. They are not the heads of God's people. They are not the heads of God's kingdom. Peter was repeating a command that he had heard directly from Jesus. And Peter reminds all Christian leaders that they need to perform the role of servants, not masters, to those that God has put under their care. Their real honor is in serving the Lord Jesus, the one that they take orders from. They don't have any more authority than what the Lord gives them, nor are they servants of men. Obedience to their own master frees them from subjection to all others. We're not guests, we're waiters. We're not landlords, we're laborers. The word servant literally means under oarsmen or under rowers. Now, under oarsmen or under rowers would pull the oars on the lowest level of a ship. For example, there were three levels of of rowers in a galley. Now, a galley was a ship that was powered only by the men rowing that boat. They didn't have a motor. Those ships were only powered by men pulling the oars of that boat. Now, there were three levels on those galleys. There was the top level... That would be the job you want if you were going to be a rower or had to be a rower. Because the top row had it the best. They had fresh air. It was cooler. Hey, they might have even you know, had a view. But those under them on the, in the second row, they were shut in. They didn't have it. It wasn't as cool on the second row, you know, temperature-wise, because again, now you're lower in the galley. But the bottom level, the third level of rowers, they had it the worst. They would get. They would be weak from heat. They would be worn out with the aching, agonizing, tormenting work of rowing. And you can use your imagination. Whatever fell from the men on the upper rows, they got it the worst down at the bottom. Sweat, be it anything else, if they got sick. And Paul says, that's what we are. We're under rowers. We're those servants rowing on the third level. It was extremely hard work to row a galley. And those fast strokes drain the life and the strength and the emotions out of those rowers. Let's be happy to wear ourselves out even in the worst position under the worst of conditions for Jesus Christ. Let us be willing to be doormats at our master's entrance hall. Let's not seek honor for ourselves but honor the weaker vessels by our serving them. The psalmist said in Psalm 100 verses 1 through 5, Let us shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. We are his people and sheep of his pasture. Notice, enter his gates with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving go into his courts with praise, give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good. You know, we need, to show, we need to show people we serve a good master. Also, servants are to be thought of as being appointed by Christ, responsible to him, to be judged by him, to be devoted to him, to speak in his name, to preach him and to preach his redemption. To rely on his help, to take orders from him. Not to create, but to find out his mind. Because Paul said, we do have the mind of Christ when when Christ is dwelling in us. Paul said, we're also to think of uh, of servants as stewards of the mysteries of God, verse 1 says. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Every man, every woman is a steward or overseer entrusted with the master's goods in whatever way that might be. The church is God's house where he alone is master. Apostles and other teachers are distributors of the good things in God's house, like the great doctrines of the faith. Entrusted, we are entrusted with using the gift that God has given us and to improve on them when we're given the chance. But this is especially true of the Christian servant. He or she is entrusted with the responsibility of explaining the mysteries of God. God's secrets to people. We're not called to tell them about ourselves or our own ideas about God. Which this world wants to do. They want to tell you what they think God is like and what he's not like. And they're they're so wrong. 99.9% of the time. We're not called to tell people what we think God is. But we're to tell them who he is truly through the word of God. We're to tell them about God's saving faith. We're given a great responsibility. The biblical biblical view of Christian ministry should protect us from two common extremes. First, that servants, we are not lords. We've not been given a supernatural power and we're not appointed to rule men's consciences. Secondly, stewards are not the servants of the people. Not appointed to teach their favorite kind of doctrine. They're not appointed to teach what they believe the word of God says. Stewards are the servants of Jesus Christ given the responsibility to give them his truth whether men want to hear it or not, whether they like it or not. And the great requirement of stewards, it says, is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Every steward must give account of his stewardship. And the main requirement is faithfulness. We're not responsible for being successful. We're responsible for being faithful. Now, many times men ask if the preacher can do the job. Is the preacher eloquent? Is he trained? Is he educated? Is he charismatic? Is he organized? But God asks, is he faithful? Is he faithful? Does he do what God asks him to do? Because God will give give him what he needs to have if he's faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? Faithful. How can we tell whether a person is faithful or not? Well, in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, Paul made a pretty broad statement about the character and the conduct of God. Paul said of God that God God is faithful. God is faithful. That's literally translated faithful to God. The word faithful means worthy of trust or trustworthy, dependable. You and I can trust God. God's laws never change. They never change because God never changes. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no unpredictability with God. He's 100% dependable. And when the word is used about, when it's speaking of man's faith, it usually is used in a practicing sense. In other words, in what we do meaning an active or constant trust and obedience. A man is said to be faithful when he trusts God or he obeys his superiors or carries out the duties he's supposed to perform. But faithfulness doesn't depend on how good or how many gifts a person has, but how he uses them and does he use them. The man, remember in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the man with two talents will get the same reward as the man with five talents. Why? Because they were both just as faithful. Nor is faithfulness measured by men, by what men call success. Because when you look at the world and you look at people who you might think are successful, the world will tell you a man is successful. Oh, they got, they, they got money, they got uh, riches, they got the big house, the big car, they got it all. The world, that's how the world measures success. But faithfulness to God is often contrary to what the world says. You see, the servant with a lot of talent needs to be careful. And let the servant with few talents be encouraged because Jesus will say to both servants, well done, good and faithful servant. The servant's judge is not the congregation. Notice that Paul said in verse 3. He said, but with me, it is very small, a small thing that I should notice be judged by you or by a human court. And I love this. Paul wasn't bothered much and we need to get to be like Paul. Paul wasn't bothered much by what others said. He wasn't bothered by others comments or criticism. But on the other hand, what people say about a servant does, you know, about him doing his duty uh, It's not to be lightly taken lightly and ignored either. If they praise you, hey, be careful of being satisfied with this. Be careful about getting puffed up. If they condemn you, we need to check ourselves is what they're saying true. But we need to seek and be more concerned about a higher judgment than those that we serve. And that is the judgment of the one that really counts. Because men don't always, you know, they don't always know the reason for why we do something. They don't, know, they don't know our heart behind why we do something. They can't measure how much heart we put into what we do in our service or our motivation. So you see, their evaluation of faithfulness is not always accurate. And the judge of the servant is not the servant himself. We are not the judge of ourselves. Paul says that in verse 3. Paul rejected being his own judge. You know, he says, I don't even judge myself. He he can't find any wrongdoing in his service, verse 4 says. He says, I, I don't see anything wrong with what I'm doing. But he doesn't look at his judgment of himself as total proof of his faithfulness. Because you see, even our judgment can be wrong at times. Paul says, I don't even trust my own judgment about myself. If you trust your judgment about yourself, think about what Paul said. He says, a good conscience, it's very good. But he says, don't be foolish enough to measure yourself by yourself. Because if I measure myself by myself, I can, oh, I can think highly of myself. Oh, yeah, I'm great. I'm good. I'm doing all the right things. Our conscience isn't the final judge in our faithfulness. God's going to be our final judge on that day we stand before him. The Lord is our judge, Paul said in verse 5. Paul said in Romans 14, 4, Who are you to to condemn God's servants? They are responsible to the Lord, not you. So let the Lord tell them whether they're right or wrong. And with with the Lord's help, they will do what is right and will receive his approval. You see, this is man's judgment day when we stand before God. Paul said in verse 5 here, notice, when the Lord comes, notice, when the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. When, when we stand before God, God's going to show us all the hidden things of our heart, the things that only you and Him know. The thing that you don't think anybody else knows. God's going to show it to you. And he's going to show you the counsels of your heart. The things that you think about in your heart. This is going to be man's judgment day. And the verdict on that day, when I stand before God, when you stand before God, that verdict is going to be the result of perfect knowledge, God's knowledge. Because God knows everything. And if he condemns you, you can't say, well, you, you don't have it right. That's not the full story. God knows it all. He's perfect in his knowledge. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He will have all of the facts and there's going to be nothing that you can do to change that. He will know everything about the whole case in your life and every steward will then receive praise from God. So, Do all of your work remembering that Jesus is your judge. He knows what you do. He knows who you are. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. And he sees your honest desire to serve him even behind. Maybe you have a lot of failures. He sees your, your, your motivation, your desire to serve him, even though we might fail many times. And secondly, don't judge others. Jesus will judge his own servants. Now, Jesus doesn't judge until we're dead. So what are, what are we doing judging each other now? Jesus is going to judge us when we're dead. Verses 6 through 13 now. Paul speaks against self, uh, self-conceit, verse, beginning with verse 6. Paul says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you different from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death because we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Party spirit leads to undeserved praise of men when the leader of a group becomes a hero in the eyes of those that belong to that group. Two wrongs result from that. One... Pride, self-sufficiency and conceit are one. Secondly, undeserved loss of respect of others. You see we lift up somebody, we put them on a pedestal and we give them undeserved pride uh, uh, praise and then the others lose respect. They, they lose the respect because you've lifted up somebody that doesn't you know deserve that, that praise. Paul has already given us different reasons why we should watch out for this hateful spirit. And while speaking about himself and Apollos in verse 6, using using themselves as an illustration, he's been teaching us how to look at all servants of Christ. They're not to be praised more than what the Scripture says about them. Nor are they to let themselves get puffed up with pride against each other. And then Paul makes a good argument for this in verse 7. Notice what he says, For who makes you differ? Notice in that verse 7. Verse 7. He says, for who makes you differ from another? What makes you different from anybody else? You see, if we're better off than our neighbors, or we have gifts that they don't have, thank God for it. This question should be asked when we think about all the earthly privileges that we have. It's not based on where we were born and who we were born to. It's based on what God has done for us. Health, wealth, position, education, all of those things. Even more so when it comes to spiritual benefits. <clears throat> he said, Who makes you different from others? Who makes you different from the drunkard? Who makes you different from the drug abuser, from the condemned felon in prison? What makes you different than the poor man, the homeless person, the blind man? God does. And I've thought about that many times when I see somebody, you know, that's down and out or I see, you know, people across the world in third world countries and they live in such poor places. I say, God, I am so blessed that that's not me. I don't take it for granted that I'm better or superior. to I just got, you know, like Paul said, <clears throat> by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Thank you, Lord. That I, that I have enough food to eat. Thank you, Lord, that I have transportation to get to work and to church and whatever. Thank you, Lord, that I have clothes on my back and, and whatever it is that I have, Lord, thank you for it. Because it's God who's provided it for me. It's because of God, of who I am and what I am. And if we just take the time to really think it through, we wouldn't brag about anything. We would praise the one who really deserves it. Spiritual pride robs God of his glory. And in verse 8 here, Paul gets a little sarcastic with the proud Corinthians. He tells them, notice he says in verse 8, Oh, you think you already have everything you need. You think you're already rich. You've begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. He says, you guys talk like you've already reached perfection and took part in the millennial glory. You act like you're not only rich, but seated like kings on the throne. He says, oh, I wish that was really true. Because he said, then we also might share in your glory. But too bad. You reign without us. You're so fortunate being already exalted. But we poor apostles are still suffering on the earth. This is how Paul is ridiculing the pride of the Corinthians. This is a warning for those today who think they're perfect. These Corinthians had deceived themselves into thinking they've reached the goal. See, that's the trouble with spiritual pride. It's very subtle and it's very dangerous. And Paul makes a sad contrast here. Uh, uh, Here Paul contrasts the proud Corinthians with the suffering condition that he and his fellow apostles were in. Think about this. Here's the overall picture. Verse 9, it says, I think that God has displayed us the apostles last as men condemned to death. Paul seems to be thinking about the exhibitions in the amphitheater in those days. At the end, where criminals who were condemned to die were brought in to fight with animals, wild animals, or each other. The apostles' sufferings were a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men, he said in verse 9. Watching them with interest. And what was true about these servants of Christ is to some degree true about every believer today. We're like wrestlers in the arena, fighting for dear life with many eyes watching us, except we wrestle against flesh and blood. And then Paul gives the details of the picture. This is a stressful description of the apostles' life. He says, he, he mentions in verse 11. Notice verse 11. He says, to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. This is, a, again, the description, the stressful description of the apostles. He says, we go hungry and thirsty and we don't have enough clothes to keep us warm. We're often beaten. We don't have a home. And he gives more details in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Read about Paul's life as an apostle as he goes from place to place. He worked to pay his own way while he preached the gospel. He suffered a lot of hardships. He was exposed to many dangers. And he was treated like garbage. The the world's garbage, verse 13 says. Look at the word, verse 13. Being defamed, we entreat, we have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. The word off-scouring is a picture of something filthy that has to be scrubbed off of some surface. I would compare it to maybe like a bathtub ring. It has to be scoured off. It's the dirt that's left behind. He says, we're like that to the world. He says, it's no surprise then that men call him a fool. Because looking at Paul from the outside, at all he'd been through, there probably wasn't a life more miserable. But all of this changes when we know that it was done for Jesus Christ. Love for Jesus made Paul's suffering something to boast about. Are we willing to endure hardship for Jesus' name? Are we willing to pick up the cross that he lays across our path with a Christ-like spirit? Suffering for Jesus is suffering with him. He was despised and he was rejected of men. And where he is, that's where his servants should be too. And besides this, we have here suffering endured in the spirit of Christ. Paul said in verse 12, notice, being reviled, we blessed. Being persecuted, we endured. That is, we bared, we bared it. We, we bear with it. And this was according to the Lord's commandment in Matthew 5, 44, and, and after his exa- Peter's example in 1 Peter two twenty three. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier for Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4.5, Paul said, but you be watchful in all things and endure afflictions. We are called to endure afflictions. We're called to suffer affliction. And that's why when you hear many people, oh, God wouldn't want you to suffer that. Oh, God wouldn't want you to go through that. Well, you're arguing with the scriptures. We are to endure affliction. We are to endure it as a good soldier. This really is an honorable kind of life. The man or woman that's really a strong person is the one who can rise above the criticism and the hatred of people and think of them with Christ-like passion, knowing, hey, they don't have the Lord. That's why they're the way they are. They need Jesus, and that's why we need to tell them about Jesus. Compare this humble following of Jesus with the proud boasting of the Corinthians. Verses 14 through 21, we see now Paul uh, as a loving father to his children, beginning with verse 14. Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know uh, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul has used some pretty harsh words with the Corinthians. But they were all spoken in love. He's written to them like a father who wants his children to be corrected and not ashamed. Paul's spiritual fatherhood, in verse 14, notice he says, For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Salvation is the beginning of a new life, a spiritual life. And this change is made through the Holy Spirit based on Christ's redemptive work, what he did on the cross, through the spearmint's instrument, instrument, which is the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And this word is given out by the servants of the gospel. Now, in a lesser way, Paul could say he was the father of the Corinthian church because he was the one who introduced them to the, the Christian life. Now, how is it set apart from other relationships? Paul said in verse 15, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. Paul was calling attention to his special role as the Corinthians' spiritual father. He was trying to unify the church. And in trying to unify the church, Paul used his relationship with them. By the term father, he meant he was the church's founder. Because he started the church in Corinth, he could be trusted to have his best interest at heart. He was their spiritual father, and he was concerned for them. He wanted the best for them, spiritually speaking, in all other ways. Paul's tough words were motivated by his love. You know, many times, you know, people don't understand that when you come out and you're you're truthful with them, and, and you know, sometimes the words are harsh. It's because you care. Those words are motivated by love. Like the love a good father has for his children. And as a father, Paul suggests the duty of admonition. It's the part of a father to faithfully convince, rebuke, and exhort. Spiritual fathers can't just look away when their children are doing something wrong. A good parent would not look away when they see their children doing something wrong. They're going to confront them and they're going to to tell them truth. And many times they don't want to hear that truth, but they need to hear that truth. Love has to patiently, tenderly talk and then severely discipline sometimes. Notice the fatherly harshness of Paul in this letter as he warns his beloved children. Notice in verse 14. Notice what he says in 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. I'm telling you this for your own good. And how many times as parents have we told our children that? I'm telling you this for your own good. Being a father suggests setting a good example. Notice what he says in verse 16. Imitate me. Imitate me. Paul told the Corinthians to follow his example. Paul could say this because, man, he walked close to God. He spent time in God's word. He spent time in prayer. And he was aware of God's presence in his life at all times. God was Paul's example. So Paul's life could be an example to other Christians. Now, Paul wasn't expecting others to imitate everything that he did. But they should imitate those aspects of his beliefs and behavior that were modeling Christ's way of living. And as we all know, children watch their father. Children watch their father and they copy him. Good or bad, they copy them. Example is powerful in all areas. And especially in an area that's so noticeable like Christian ministry. It confirms the truth that's taught. Godly examples encourages believers it rebukes the ungodly, it draws it draws searchers to Christ, it draws those who are looking, it draws them to Jesus. Every servant of Christ should be able to say, follow me. Can we? Can we tell people, imitate me? Man, that's 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 heavy. But imitating other Christians, even the most well known, has its limits. Because we know men are not perfect and they do not perfectly reflect the image of Christ. And no wise teacher will want to see his own faults in his people. Human example is useful only as far as it helps us to imitate Jesus. And as a father, Paul was concerned for the church's spiritual instruction like a real father, even though Paul wasn't there, he wanted his converts to grow more. So what does he do? He sends a personal assistant, young Timothy. And in order to encourage them to imitate him, his humility and self-denying life, he sends a messenger. He sends Timothy to remind, remind them of his ways in Christ. Remembering a good man's life helps a person's holiness. Remembering somebody who was a godly example can help guide you along in life. Also, remembering truth that you already learned—it's part of the preacher's work to stress old truths and to get those old truths to go deep into a, into their heart and into their conscience. And there was wisdom in sending an assistant, and especially Timothy, for the mission. Because Timothy was Paul's, as verse 17 says, he was Paul's beloved and faithful son. Paul was in the same spiritual relationship with Timothy as he was with the converts in Corinth. So you see, Timothy could speak to them like a brother because Paul was his spiritual father too. And having the wise and faithful servants of Christ are often helpful in reviving, bringing the church back to life. Paul's visit to Corinth was ridiculed by those who wanted to weaken Paul's authority. He said, Ah, Paul's not going to visit again. But in spite of this, Paul says he intends to come in verse 18. He says, I'm coming. The servant of Christ needs, needs needs courage. And he was open to God's direction. Notice in verse 19 he says, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. Yes, man makes his plans. But God is the one who says the final makes the final decision. All of our plans for the future must be filtered through God's control. Paul's visit was to test their spiritual profession. Were they all that they said they were? They were proud boasters. They were big talkers there in Corinth. Paul wanted to see if they could back up what they talked. Could they back it up though with power? That's the thing. It's easy to talk. But he wanted to see if it was backed up by power in their life. Because power is the main thing, not just talk. The kingdom of God, that is true Christianity, isn't about words. It's not a matter of words. It's a matter of power. It's a matter of life living, being an example. Paul said in First 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.5, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. They lived it. They were examples of the, of the word of God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our words must be tested by our works. A religion of, of the lips. A religion of words. Hey, it's useless. If there's no life to back it up. If there's no words to show that what I say is true. And then Paul moves forward based on his circumstances. Whether Paul was to come. He said, hey, notice what he said in verse Verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 13 there. No, let's get back to verse 21. I'm sorry. He says, what do you want? He says, do you want me to come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Whether Paul was to come with a rod, that is punishment and scolding or in love, he says, it depends upon you guys. It's going to depend upon you. The discipline of the church depends upon the character of the people it deals with being severe or tender, whatever the situation requires. Both fatherly love and wisdom is required in those who are called to deal with those who have gone astray. In closing, it's not an easy thing to be a minister of Jesus Christ. As a steward, you must be faithful to your master no matter what people say about you no matter what people say to you no matter what people do to you you will be treated like garbage by the world by people of the world and your own spiritual children hey they may break your heart your own spiritual children may break your heart and have to be disciplined god's faithful servants deserve our love respect and obedience and prayers father we come before you and we thank you so much for this chapter we thank you for the lesson in it god about being faithful father being faithful to you being faithful in the call that you've given us to be faithful in the ministry you've placed upon us to be faithful to the people that you've placed under our care Father, we thank you so much that you've given us all the tools that we need to do what you've called us to do, Father. Lord, help us to be faithful. Father, may our life be an example of who we serve. May our life be an example of Christ who lives in us. And if you're watching via live stream at home or maybe you're here this morning, You recognize that I need Christ in my life. I want to be real. I want to know know the true and the living God. I don't care what people will think about me or say about me or do to me. Because on that day I stand before God. Those people are not going to be there. It'll be one-on-one. Just you and God. And if you feel that the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. And you want to receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior. I'm going to repeat this prayer out loud. And you repeat the same prayer. To the Lord in your heart, with all of your heart. Repeat it to the Lord after me Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I want to receive you as my Lord, my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And help me now to follow you all the days of my life. Help me, Lord, to understand the Bible. And help me to grow. And thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you said that prayer... Praise the Lord, first of all. If you need a Bible, see Pastor Tony, one of the ushers, or myself afterward. We'll be more than glad to give you one. And again, get plugged into a Bible teaching church. If you're close enough, you can come here. But if it's too far, then, you know, find one that teaches you the Word of God. Let me pray for the offering, and then